Next year, the session is encouraging us to read through the Bible together chronologically, uh, to read through the Bible in a year. It is, of course, good to take time to read parts, to meditate on parts of Scripture, but it is also good to uh, have the whole of the Bible in view, that we can see the Bible's big picture, and so to set that uh, apart and to uh, prepare for that. This December sermon series, we are looking at the Bible's big picture of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation. It is important to have creation in view because it sets up the interpretive framework for the whole Bible, the covenant of works or the covenant of life, the creation mandate, the cultural mandate. We use those terms kind of interchangeably that we have this uh, creation mandate or cultural mandate to um, be fruitful and multiply, to rule the earth, to subdue it. And that's part of the covenant of works or the covenant of life that God made with Adam as our covenant representative. Our humanistic culture agrees that nobody's perfect. Uh, Adam certainly fell, but nobody's perfect. But our culture even celebrates sin, as long as that sin doesn't hurt anybody else. That's sort of the the man-centeredness. Humanism fails to know and rightly revere the creator God. Our imperfection is not just simple imperfection, it is sin. It is idolatry. It is rebellion against the holy God who created us. The fact that sin also affects other people is secondary to the fact that our rebellion, first and foremost, is an offense to the God who created us. But this also means that the solution to sin is not found in ourselves or in others. It is found in the God who recreates us. The bulk of the Bible is the history of redemption, the history of this redeeming work, God revealing and implementing his redemptive plan following creation and the fall of mankind into sin. A right interpretation and application of the whole Bible hinges on a right understanding of God who is the revealer and the one revealed by his word. If we make the Bible about us, then we will misunderstand. But when we know the Bible to be God's revelation of himself and his work, well, then we hear God's word as God's word. That that might be the case for us this morning. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Indeed, O God, you are the God of creation the God of revelation, who has revealed yourself, your will, your works, that we would know you, that we would know of the creating and recreating work that you do, that you would apply that even now, that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, we would know it to be your word, because your Holy Spirit now comes, we pray, to bear witness to the reading and proclamation. As always, we pray for the preacher in the pulpit, knowing that he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Genesis 1 and 2 uh, are the account of creation. Genesis 3 and 4, the account of the fall. Genesis 5 and 6 begin the account of redemption that goes through the scriptures. Genesis 5 is one of those 
chapters that when you read through the whole Bible, you can kind of skim read because lots of names and simply uh, names and ages. Um, you read it, I guess, a little bit more detail if you're studying for a Bible trivia uh, competition. But here it is. Let's kind of skim read through Genesis 5 so we understand what's going on here. This is God's word. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. We then read about Seth and how long he lived until he became the father of Enosh, and then Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived, became the father of Kenan, and Enosh Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. Kenan became the father of Mahalel. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. Mahalel became the father of Jared, Uh, Sorry, uh, yeah, Jared and Mahalel lived 895 years, and then he died. Jared then goes on to become the father of Enoch, and Jared lives 962 years, and then he died. Enoch becomes the father of Methuselah. Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. Methuselah becomes the father of Lamech, and Methuselah lives 969 years, and then he died. Lamech becomes the father of Noah. Lamech lives 777 years, and then he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so Genesis 5 traces this ancestral line from Adam to Noah. And in this chapter, we see creation remembered, and then the fall remembered, and ultimately redemption realized. First, we see creation remembered. In that first verse, it's the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, created them male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. I'm going to take a moment on this point because it's something that our current culture is struggling with, that God did create humanity, male and female. And it is a result of the fall of mankind into sin that we have things, uh, the confusion of gender identity and gender roles and sexual boundaries. Now, for the vast majority of us who do not struggle with gender identity, we understand that our biological gender is our gender. And we can fail to understand the genuine struggle that some people have with this. But we can understand it, perhaps, because we can identify with confusion and neglect in gender roles. We know how it is that, like Adam, many men fail to protect and lovingly lead women, but may neglect or be abusive. Or as with Eve, many women fail to support and intelligently submit, but may usurp or become servile. We may also fail to understand the serious struggle that some people have with same-sex attraction, but we are well aware of sexual sin struggles like pornography, fantasy, lust, infatuation. God created us male and female, 
with sex as a gift within marriage relationships. That is the right ordering of things within the creation order. The fall distorts. The fall corrupts. But redemption is the path to live as God created us to live, that we might glorify and enjoy him and to live according to God's great creation. And so Genesis 5, we see this creation remembered, but we also see the fall remembered. Chapter 5 gives us this family line of mankind with certain ancestors who are named from Adam down through Noah. It is not an exhaustive or comprehensive list, but simply traces that ancestry of Adam to Noah. Keep in mind then that we're all related. We are blood relatives with everybody else on planet Earth. It's one of the many reasons why racism is anathema. We are all related. We are all one family. But a feature not to be lost here is that each person, no matter how long they live, each person dies as a result of the fall. The Lord clearly had warned in the covenant of life, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And indeed, there was an immediate spiritual death that took place. Adam and Eve experienced guilt and shame. But it also introduced the reality of physical death. Adam died. Eve died. Abel died. Cain died. Seth died. Every person dies. And yet here in Genesis 5, redemption is also realized. Even though everyone dies, life continues. My title for Genesis 5 is life expectancy. There is life expectancy, sort of a double meaning on that. There is the expectation that life will continue, as well as the fact that each person early on has quite a long life expectancy, right? Adam lives to the age of 930, Seth to 912, Enosh to 905. And there's your Bible trivia. Verse 27 gives us the oldest man ever, Methuselah, dying at the ripe old age of 969. How about that? Well, clearly there is more children than those who are named. These certain names are given in order to trace the particular ancestry as part of the history of redemption. It's interesting that it was recently noted in the news that in the United States for the first time in a really long time, life expectancy actually dropped. Overdose and suicide, taking too many people at too young of an age. The Redeemer has come. The redemption has come. This ought not be the case. Never has it been more important for us to minister the gospel of redemption, to minister the light of redemption into the stubborn darkness of our world. Well, if a title for Genesis 5 is life expectancy, then perhaps the title for Genesis 6 might be eternal life expectancy. Let's read the whole of Genesis 6, and then in it we're going to see the wonderful doctrines of grace. Listen to God's word in Genesis 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal 
His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Well, verse 3 marks a significant change from long life expectancy to eternal life expectancy. Verse 3 says, tells us, The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. And sure enough, we begin to see that the next generations no longer live for 800 or 900 years, but begin to live for 120 years or less. So that no longer do we have long life in a fallen condition in a fallen world, but we are living and a redeemed life, and anticipate eternal life in the new world to come. Now, I'm going to preface everything that I'm about to say for the rest of the sermon by admitting, obviously, I am Reformed. That's not supposed to be like a bad thing. I'm theologically Reformed, and I'm glad for that. I am a Calvinist. I'm an Augustinian. I'm a covenantal Christian whose life was dramatically changed by what we call the doctrines of of grace. In fact, we currently have a Sunday school class that is looking at the doctrines of grace, also recognized by the acronym TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. 
It's been suggested that if uh, someone becomes reformed, they should be locked up for a year. Some of us had this experience, right? We became reformed. We understood the sovereignty of God applying to everything, including salvation, and suddenly that's all we wanted to talk about. We often talked about it poorly. We turned every conversation into a conversation about predestination and election. Become reformed, lock them up for a year until they get it sorted out, and then let them back to society. So I say all that because I'm careful not to read my Reformed theology into Scripture, but simply to let God's Word speak out the truth that is revealed there. Genesis 6 is one of those places where it seems to me that the tulip, the doctrines of grace, are clearly evident. First, total depravity. And Genesis 6-5 gives us a vivid description of total depravity. It's one of the most frightening descriptions in all of Scripture. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. Is that not frightening? In creation, the thoughts of mankind were not evil. They were good all the time. But because of the fall, mankind is corrupted in every part of his being so that we are in our minds and hearts only evil all the time. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. Notice it is the thoughts of the heart that are only evil all the time. We restrain ourselves so that our thoughts don't always turn into action, right? We may even restrain our actions for clearly sinful reasons, self-centered reasons, doing or not doing things for personal advantage. Somebody might might want to punch in the face, but I don't do it because ultimately that would not be of advantage to me, right? You might see how you could take advantage of somebody, but you go, I'm probably going to get caught and I shouldn't do that. I could steal that, but might get caught and ultimately that's not to my advantage. So sometimes we restrain ourselves even for sinful reasons. But sometimes it's God's sovereign hand that restrains evil being lived out. So that even though the natural inclination for people is to be only evil all the time, that evil is restrained. And even for believers, sometimes the inclination of our heart frightens us. We are shocked at the wicked inclinations that sometimes come into our head and our heart, and we are thankful that God restrains us by his great grace. I have a pastor friend who often says, if you knew the things that go on inside my head and heart, you would not want me to be your pastor. (laughs) But then again, if I knew the things that were going on inside your heads and hearts, I probably wouldn't want to pastor you either. So it's all good. So that's total depravity. Genesis 6 verse 8 shows us unconditional election. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word that's translated favor in the NIV is actually translated grace in the King James, and the word that's there, the Hebrew word, is translated grace throughout the Old Testament. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord does not mean that there was something inherently different about Noah. He was not nicer or cuter or better than other people. By nature, the inclination of Noah's heart was only evil all the time. But by God's grace, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord looked with favor on Noah unconditionally. 
And so verse 9 goes on to say that Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. That's not a statement of Noah's natural condition, but of his standing because of God's grace. No one is righteous by his own work. Our righteousness is because of Christ's righteousness credited to us. That's at the heart of the gospel, the doctrine of justification. And no one is blameless by his own work. Christ takes our blame that we might be blameless before God. All of us are here today, not because we're good, but because God is good. It is by God's great grace that we have found favor in his eyes. It's a total depravity, unconditional election. We are righteous, blameless in God's sight because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so it's common for people to think that Jesus died for everyone, but this is not the case. If Jesus died for everyone and not everyone is saved, then it would mean that Jesus' sacrifice was faulty. And so the doctrine, we call it limited atonement or particular atonement, that Jesus died particularly for those who would be saved, the elect. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says it like this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given to me, but I will raise it up on the last day. The cross of Christ was the atonement for the elect, those whom the Father has given. The Old Testament prefigures and foreshadows that atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In Genesis 6, the ark prefigures, foreshadows the work of the cross. In verses 14 to 21, we see particular instructions to build a particular vessel to save a particular group. Noah and his family will be saved, not because they were good, not because they were better than anyone else. In fact, the end of chapter 9 shows us some of their sins. They are saved for a particular reason. Look again at verses 17 and 18. God says, I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Noah and his family are saved because the covenant of grace is applied to them. We struggle with this doctrine of limited atonement because from our vantage point, it just doesn't seem fair. But creation and the fall remind us that what is fair is that we all perish, that anyone is saved is solely by God's grace. And so God's grace to the elect is irresistible grace. Those whom he calls respond. Again, not because of something naturally in us, but because of a supernatural work that the Lord does in us. We see irresistible grace, uh, certainly in verse 22, the last verse, that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. We also see it in the verse 
uh, above, actually two verses. Go back up to verse 20. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. And then you're to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and stored away as food for you and for them. That Noah would even build an ark is incredible. And that he would then get on it before the rain starts is incredible. But then the fact that animals would come to him is incredible. Movies like Evan Almighty, right? And other parodies even of Noah's Ark depict just how miraculous this whole thing is. We kind of joke about the impossibility of herding cats. Can you imagine trying to get two of every animal, and actually seven for, the, for some of the animal? Like, excuse me, Mr. and Mrs. Bear, could you get on the boat? Right? Just go ahead and follow right behind the lions and the hippos. It'll be all good. No problems. If the inclination of our heart is only evil all the time, it is truly miraculous that we respond to God's call. It is irresistible grace. And so verse 1 of chapter 7 describes this grace to the whole family again. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Again, that God found them righteous does not mean that they were righteous and God found them, oh, hey, look. But it means that God made that the case. In fact, the ESV captures it a bit better. It says, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. God has seen to it that we are righteous. Not because of our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ credited to us. Credited to those for whom Christ fulfilled the covenant of grace. Miraculously, supernaturally, we respond to God's call of grace. So total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then perseverance of the saints. It's impossible for us to lose our salvation because our salvation is never in our hands. It's in the hands of the God who holds on to his promises, the God who chose to create us, the God who chose to redeem us is the God who chooses to hold us in his hand forever. The perseverance of the saints, perhaps better called the preservation of the saints. The Lord keeps his covenant promises. He saves unto all eternity the elect that he has determined to save. To see this a little bit, flip forward in your Bible to the end of chapter 8 of Genesis. Something that we see after the floodwaters go down and Noah and the rest get off the boat. Uh, Noah builds an altar uh, and makes a sacrifice on it. And then down in verse 21 of chapter 8, we read, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma from this sacrifice and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. I was talking about this with my daughters last night, and one of them was joking about, you know, you've got a limited number of animals that you put on the ark, and now you're going to sacrifice one of them. Like, oh no, there's the last unicorn. <laughs> Noah's altar and sacrifice typify the pleasing aroma of Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice. 
Even though mankind's natural inclination is evil from childhood, only evil all the time by nature, because of God's covenant of grace, because of what has been accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ, he will redeem and not destroy. And so the covenant that then is made with Noah in chapter 9 is a further unfolding and revealing of the covenant of grace. In it, we see a renewal of the creation mandate, this cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, all of which is made more difficult because of the remaining corruption on the earth due to the lasting effects of the fall. However, it's possible to do because of the redeeming work that God is doing in us and by us. Salvation is a work of God's grace. The subsequent sanctification and good works that flow from our faith, that flow from the outworking of God's grace, respond to God's grace. Respond to redemption. And may the truth set us free. Amen.